0: So we are, uh, as Pastor Conn said, we are in our third week of our series uh, called the Big 12. Um, and so we have looked at Adam and last week Pastor Kahn talked about Abraham. And, uh, and just a reminder of why we're doing this. Uh, the reason we're going through the Big 12 is because um, when we have been bonded together with Jesus by faith, then the Old Testament isn't merely history, but it's actually our family story. It's actually our genealogy. And so we are looking at these characters because, in a sense, this is our this is our history. This is our family. And so we are looking at, at these characters to see their example, to see what they have done um, that models for us and ways that we should follow after and what ways they have have not been an exemplary model in ways we should steer clear of. And so we're looking at these characters for examples. Um, but not only that, more importantly than looking at them for moral examples, we're looking at these characters because we want to see Christ. Right, The Bible in this world is not about us. That's one of the central things when you become a Christian. You realize that this world is not about you. The scriptures are not primarily about us. But rather they are about how God has chosen to interact with us. And so what we see when we look at these characters is we're looking to see who Christ is. And how he has come and demonstrated the fullness of what they point to. And so when we looked at Adam, we saw that Jesus is the better Adam that has come to renew the covenant where Adam failed. That Jesus is the better Abraham that was perfect in his faithfulness. And so what we really want to see here is that we don't want to just learn moral lessons, right? Those are important, but ultimately we want to see is the gospel of grace put on display because we believe that we are changed primarily through God's kindness and grace towards us in Jesus' death and resurrection. So... As I say that, we are going to jump into our third character, um, Jacob. And so we are going to look at three things. We are going to look at the story of Jacob. We are going to look at the example of Jacob. And then we are going to look at Christ through Jacob. The story, example, and Christ through Jacob. So, Jacob's story is massive. If you look at Genesis, it is Genesis 25 all the way through Genesis 49. And so, we are going to do a Spark Notes edition. Um, and so, we are going to try to do a summary of, of Jacob's life. Um, Jacob is the, great, is the grandson of Abraham. Abraham's son, Isaac, goes and marries uh, uh, and takes a wife named Rebekah. Rebekah and Isaac are barren though they're barren for 20 years and isaac prays and asks the lord to move asks the lord for children and the lord answers and uh uh, the lord answers and rebecca has this pain and she goes to seek the lord and the lord tells her that there is there are two nations there are two children in your room two nations that the older will serve the younger and that these nations will be divided and so, hearing this, she next brings forth twins, right? One, the first is called Esau. He is red and hairy, named, which is what his name means. And, uh, and the next is Jacob, and he was born right after. And Jacob means heel grabber. It means grabber or deceiver. And so, from the moment they're born, uh, parents have favorites, right? And their parents had favorites. And, uh, and so, Jacob lo- or, uh, um, sorry, Isaac loved Esau, Esau was a man's man, right? He was strong, he was bold, he was very rash um, in his decisions, but yet he was a hunter. He loved the the outdoors, and so he was constantly going and finding game and cooking up game for his father. Um, And so Isaac loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Rebecca loved Jacob. Jacob was smooth, he was cunning, he was intelligent. He was quiet, though, he kept to himself, and he was, he was very manipulative in how he thought and how he approached things. Um, and he was an inside guy. He didn't really like going outside too much. And, but, but Rebecca loved. Rebecca loved Jacob. And so from the beginning, you see this, this odds between Rebecca and between Isaac and between Jacob and between Esau. And it manifests itself um esau comes in one day and and jacob takes his birthright the birthright was the um the mantle of the firstborn the the birthright meant that the firstborn was to get um double the inheritance but also that he had the responsibility of watching out and taking care of the family esau had come in from a long uh game hunt and he was exhausted he was famished and he lays himself at the table and he sees that jacob is eating some of his favorite red stew and so he asks Jacob. He says, "Give me some of that stew that I might eat it." And Jacob says, "Sell me your birthright. I'm not going to give you any food unless you give me something in return." And so and so Esau is in that moment. He says, "What good is it going to do if I die?" And so he says, "Fine, I'll give you my birthright." And Jacob makes him swear. He says, "Swear to me." And so Esau swears to Jacob. And therefore he despised his birthright. And Jacob took Esau's birthright with some stew. Hopefully, it was good stew. We see after, after this happens, Isaac leaves, and we learn that Isaac uh, deceives. He goes into Gerar, into this land, and there's a king there named Abimelech. And apparently, uh, Rebekah was pretty good looking. And so he's scared that Abimelech is going to kill him and take his wife, and so he lies about Rebekah and says that she is his sister, just as his father Abraham did. The Lord, though, is faithful the lord's faithful even in the midst of their faithlessness and god protects and reveals that rebecca really is isaac's wife and so you see from a very early age uh jacob learns deception from both his from his father the next thing we see is that they they move and um and uh jacob over um Rachel, uh, rebecca sorry overhears isaac talking and saying to esau that i'm going to bless you isaac has grown old his eyes are dim, and he thinks that perhaps his days are nearing an end, and so he tells Esau, he says, "I'm going to bless you, my son. Go and make, and go and, and hunt down game, find my favorite game, and and make my favorite stew for me. And when you come in and you make it, I will bless you. I will bless you." Rebecca hears this and and probably starts to think that this isn't what God has said, but instead of going, instead of going to Isaac and talking, she instead seeks to deceive. And she comes to Jacob and she says, Jacob, this is what we're going to do. And she starts hashing out a plan. You're going to go and you're going to grab your brother's garments and I'm going to make your father's favorite stew. And you're going to come and you're going to bring before Isaac his favorite stew and you're going to act like you're Esau. And Isaac's not going to know and he's going to bless you. Jacob though is a little scared and he says, well, hold on now. What happens if I get found out? I don't want to be cursed. And, and Rebecca says, let the curse come to me. Let the curse come to me, but you, my son, you obey my voice. And so Jacob goes. He obeys his mother's voice and he, he dresses like his brother. And Isaac doesn't believe it for a while. He says, the voice sounds like Jacob, but, but it, it smells and it feels and it tastes like, like Esau's. And so Isaac en- or, uh, Jacob ends up deceiving Isaac and Isaac blesses him. Isaac tells Jacob that he's going to have the bounty of the earth, that his brother will be his servant, and that, um, that he will master his, his enemies. It's as soon as Jacob leaves, as soon as Jacob leaves, Esau comes in. Esau comes excited. He brings the stew, ready to be blessed by his father. And as soon as he comes, Isaac cries out, Who is this? He says, This is Esau, your son, Isaac in that moment realizes that he was tricked. And he begins to tremble violently with anger. Who is it that has come in and stolen the blessing? For they shall be blessed. Esau weeps in that moment, crying, begging his father to bless him. His father blesses him, but nothing near what he had blessed Jacob. It's after this that Esau swears that he will have his vengeance. And he says, just wait until my father dies. Wait until the days of his mourning are past. As soon as that happens, I will have vengeance. I will slay my brother Jacob. Rebecca hears of this. And he comes and she comes to Isaac and she tells him, we must send Jacob away. We can't have Jacob marry a Hittite woman as Esau has. These women have made my life miserable. We have to send Jacob away. He has to marry uh, one of our family, one of our clan, one of our people and so he, and so Rebecca finds a way to keep Jacob safe. Isaac sends Jacob away to go and to take a to take a wife from rebecca 's brother Laban in the country of Haran. so Jacob leaves home and he goes on this journey to Haran to find his uncle he stays one night at a place called Luz and as he goes to sleep there he wakes up or he in a dream sorry he doesn't wake up as he as he sleeps there on the rock he uh, uh, he in a dream sees a ladder come down from heaven and he sees angels descending and ascending on it and he hears god's voice god speaks to jacob and he tells him that he will be his god And that he institutes uh, the covenant of Abraham. He promises that Jacob will have, that all the land that Jacob sees before him, that he will give to him. He promises Jacob that his descendants will be more numerable than the dust of the earth. He promises Jacob that the entire world will be blessed through his offspring. He promises Jacob that he will not leave him that he will fulfill the promises that he has given to him until he brings him safely back to the land of which he is left, back to his father. Jacob is overwhelmed at this point. He calls the place Bethel, meaning the house of God, the stairway of heaven. And he, he tells God, he says, if, if you will be with me, if you will provide food, shelter, if you will guard my path and ensure that I come back, then you will be my God I will worship and I will serve you. It's after this moment that that Jacob continues to journey on. And he arrives at Haran. And he sees a bunch of shepherds gathered around. He asks them, where is Laban? They turn and they say, well, this is his daughter, Rachel, that comes. She was a shepherdess coming with the sheep. Jacob saw Rachel and saw the, the flock that she had and went and rolled back the, the well that they might drink. And then in his excitement, he ran and kissed her. In excitement, she runs back to her father Laban and tells Laban of, of who Jacob is, that their kinsman has come. Jacob and, and Laban meet and they discuss, and Jacob begins to work for his uncle. It's after about a month of, of working for Laban that Laban says, should you serve me for nothing? Name your wages. What is it you desire? What is it you will work for? Jacob loved Rachel. He thought she was beautiful in form and appearance. And so he told Laban, he said, Give me Rachel to be my wife. Laban told him, You work for me seven years. Work seven years and you can have her for a wife. The Bible says that it seemed like but a day, but moments his seven years, because of the love and the passion that he had. But the night that Laban was to give Rachel for marriage, Jacob was deceived. The trickster is tricked. Apparently, he must have been partying hard and had too much to drink that night, for he goes in and doesn't realize that he slept with her older sister, Leah. Jacob wakes up in the morning to discover the the trick that has been played on him that he is married the older sister Leah instead of Rachel. He comes to Laban in anger, as I'm sure um, we can imagine. You gave me the wrong daughter. Why did you do such a thing? And Laban ter- turned and told him and said, it is not right, it's not according to custom in our land that the, that the younger should be married off before the older. And he said, I'll make you a deal. Work with me another seven years, and I'll give Rachel to you in marriage. And so Jacob worked another seven years and was given Rachel in marriage. It's during this time that um, they have a ton of kids. So uh, Leah, and I'm going to actually read this because there's a lot. Um, Leah bore Jacob six sons and one daughter. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun were the boys and she bore a daughter named Dina or Dinah. Um it's during this period that there's a rivalry that begins to break out between Leah and Rachel. They are at each other because Leah begins to, to bear children because she wasn't loved. Jacob showed his favoritism in that he loved Rachel far more than he loved Leah. And so because of that, God opened the womb of Leah and she began to bear Rachel in jealousy gave her maidservant, Billah to Jacob. And she said, if I cannot bear, then my maidservant will bear. And she passed on the sin that Sarah had done. And so um, Billah brings forth uh, two sons for Jacob. Uh, she bears Dan and Nephtali. Leah um, ceases to bear in that moment. And so she falls likewise. And she gives her maidservant, Zipla, Zipla to uh, to jacob and she bears two sons through him gad and asher um so finally rachel actually bears a son and his name is joseph and it's at this point um after when joseph has been born that's if you're keeping track that's 11 sons so it's 11 sons and just just like a little little reminder so um for uh, Leah, LZ, Leah and Zippla, and then for uh, um, for Rachel, RB, Rachel and Bilha, just so you remember who's who. Um, but they, they bear 11. And it's at this time that, that Jacob says, it's time for me to go home. The Lord speaks to Jacob and says, it's time for you to leave Laban. It's time for you to go to your father's house. And so... Jacob turns and, and, and tells Laban, it's you know, like, I need, to, I need to leave. And, Jake, and uh, Laban says, name your wages then. What is it that you want? And Jacob refuses to take it and he says, I will work. And so Jacob works another six years underneath Laban. And he says, I will only take of the speckled and spot of the black of the flock. Laban deceives and, and tricks Jacob and takes all of the good of the flock, all of the speckled and the spot of the black and, and takes them away so that Jacob isn't left with very many. The Lord shows favor to Jacob, though. And Jacob develops a method in which God blesses. And in six years, the herd has multiplied. And Jacob is left with a, with a massive amount of, of, of sheep. Um, Laban and his sons grow angry at this time. They're frustrated. And Jacob can tell that the favor that he once had with Laban is gone. And so he turns to his wife and and to his children and he says, it's time that we leave. And the Lord spoke and said, now is the time to go. And so Jacob deceived Laban. He waited until Laban was three days away on a journey. And he said, all right, time to go, guys. And he got everything and and they left. They took their whole caravan and and they left without even telling Laban that they were going. Laban learns about it, and as you can imagine, he didn't get to say goodbye or anything. And so he hunts them down. It takes him a full week to catch up to them. But right before he catches up, God appears to him. God appears to Laban at night because Laban most likely had ill intentions to do him harm rather than good. And God appears to Laban, and he says, I want you, when you approach Jacob, not to speak to him either good or bad. And so Laban approaches Jacob the next day and confronts him. Why did you leave? Why did you run away? You didn't even allow me to say goodbye to my children, to my grandchildren. Jacob says, I was afraid. I was afraid that you would try to take my wives from me by force. Laban said, why did you steal? Why did you steal from me? Why do you steal the household idols that I I worship? And Jacob said, I didn't steal. If anyone here is found that has stolen these household gods, they will die. And so Laban begins to examine and he hunts around the camp seeking to find out who has stolen the household gods that he had. Jacob didn't know that Rachel had actually stolen them. Rachel had stolen them, but when she found her father investigating, she hid them on the saddle of her camel and she told her father that she couldn't rise because the way of the woman was upon her and so laban passed over and rachel escaped and so we see that the deception that laban had is also within rachel it passes on laban and and jacob come to a covenant and they agree that they will no longer be at odds with one another, but instead that they will have a pillar, they will have a marker that will determine where they can go. And so uh, Laban says that God will be the watchpost; God will be the one to watch over their family, and he will be the one to guard and guide, and that they will not cross over this level, this plane, this, this marker, this altar, to do one another harm. And so Jacob and Laban leave in peace and a covenant it's as Jacob is leaving and going towards his father's land that he sends messengers to Esau. It's been 20 years, 20 years since he's seen Esau and he's still haunted by Esau's words of murder. He sends messengers to Esau to, to tell him he's coming in to send gifts to pacify his brother. The messengers come back and report that Esau is on his way, but he's not alone. Esau is bringing 400 men with him. Jacob begins to be in a panic, begins to be frightened, caught up within and without, can't go back, and his way forward is guarded by 400 men. He begins to try to appease Esau, and so he sends forth gift after gift after gift after gift. gift. And he takes his camps and he divides it in two and he says, hopefully, maybe if Esau attacks one, the other one might escape. And then he begins to send forward his family and his children towards Esau in order that he might gain sympathy. And in the night, in the early hours of the morning, Jacob is alone, finally alone. Can you imagine wrestling with his thoughts? What's going on in his head? It's in this moment, alone and desperate, that he sees a man walking towards him. He doesn't know the man, can't make him out. But the man takes hold of Jacob and strikes a stance, and they begin to wrestle. They begin and wrestle all night, but Jacob refuses to let go. The man touches Jacob's hip, and his hip goes out of socket. But Jacob refuses to let go, He says, I will not let go until you bless me. The man blesses him. And he says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but it shall be called Israel. For you have striven with men and with God and have prevailed. Jacob turns and asks the man, what is your name? The man says, why do you ask what my name is? It's in the moment that Jacob realizes that he has wrestled with God himself. He calls the name Penuel, for he has wrestled with God and striven with him. Has seen him face to face, but has not died. It's after this moment that Jacob believes a changed identity, a changed man. He goes forth to Esau, and he humbles himself seven times. He falls on his face before his brother. And instead of wrath, and instead of vengeance... His brother runs up and embraces him and kisses him. God has brought peace and has reconciled the the great divide that had marked their relationship. Esau says the gifts weren't necessary but Jacob urges him to keep them, but they are a gift. Esau urges him to come to Seir. come and be with me, come and travel, but Jacob says the flocks cannot be pushed. I must I must stay behind. Esau says, well, let me leave some men with you that they might follow along. But Jacob says, that's not necessary. We'll follow at our own pace. Even still, Jacob deceives his brother. Jacob leaves and instead goes his own way. The next story that we see in Jacob's life is that they go to Shechem. They go to Shechem and they they dwell there. It's as their daughter Dina is out amongst walking in Shechem with the women that the prince of the city, Shechem himself, comes forth and he rapes Dina. He takes her and he lies with her and he forces her. And after this, he desires her. He wants her to be his wife. And so he goes to his father Hamor and he says, get this woman for my wife. And so Hamor comes to Jacob and comes to his sons and, and urges them and says, please, what is it that you will, what's the, what's the price? Name the price and we will pay it that we might have Dina as my son's wife. His sons answered deceitfully. They say, sure, we'll give Dina as your wife, but you all must be circumcised. All the men in the city must be circumcised, and that's the only way that Dina can be married to you. And so Shechem and Hamor go back to all the men in the city, and they tell them, you must be circumcised, for this company is going to become one with us. It's on the third day that they're circumcised that Simeon and and Levi go in and take their swords and they slaughter all the men in the village as vengeance for what had happened to their daughter. Jacob is horrified. He's afraid. He realizes that that though this city is gone, there are many cities around and that he is likely to be attacked and defeated. It's in this moment where he sees his family's sin. It's most apparent his sin has been passed down. And so what does he do? He goes to Bethel. He tells his family, cleanse yourself. Put away the idols that you have been worshiping. Put on new garments for we will go. He leads his family to repent, to confess their sin. And they go to Bethel to be renewed they stay at Bethel for a while, and God shows favor. God saves him. God per- perseveres and 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 shows His steadfast love to them. It's it's after this that they go on the journey, and that Rachel passes. She gives birth to her final son, Benjamin, and she dies. Jacob's story ends with his son Joseph being broken away from him, seemingly dead, and Jacob goes down and lives in Egypt. And sees reconciliation finally happen with his family. He dies in Egypt at the age of 147. We'll talk more about Joseph's story next week. But this is Jacob's story. So I want us to now look at. Um, at Jacob's example. Right? What are, what are some things we've heard his story. What are some things that we can learn from um, in Jacob's example. Oh. Well, First, let's look at some negative things that we learned from Jacob's example. Um, The first thing that I want us to see is that deception marks Jacob's story. I hope that you guys, as you were listening to the story, I hope you saw. Deception was in the beginning, in the middle, in the end. It was all throughout the story, right? I mean, you have deception coming from Rebekah deceiving Isaac. You have Isaac deceiving Abimelech. You have Jacob deceiving Esau. Right, you have Rachel deceiving her father Laban, Laban deceiving Jacob. The entire story is marked by deception. And I think we can relate. Why is it that they were deceiving one another? Right? Deception. Deception means to paint a false portrait. It means to to lead an appearance of an untruth. Why? For a specific purpose. For a reason. The reason that we seek to deceive is because we don't trust, right? They didn't trust that God was good. They didn't trust that he was enough. They didn't trust that his way would be sufficient. And so they had to manipulate. They had to scheme. They had to lie. They had to deceive because they thought that their way was better. One of the ways that we deceive other people, especially as Christians, is that we like to paint a better picture of who we are is that we don't let other people in. We deceive other people in thinking that we're really better than we actually are. And so we show up, we put a happy face on, when people ask us how we're doing, we're doing great. Oftentimes the way that we're deceived is that we won't let anybody else in. And so we often deceive ourselves because we refuse to let anybody else in to our real struggles and our real problems because then we would feel like we really do need to change. We really do need to repent. Instead, we keep people at arm's length. We keep them away from who we really are. Because in that moment, we feel like we're not that bad. Isolation is one of the primary ways in that we seek to deceive others and we deceive ourselves. We don't have to really deal with our idolatry because who's going to ever call us out? So we keep the church, we keep accountability, we keep others away. And therefore, it seems like everything's good. It seems like everything's okay. But one of the things we learn from Jacob's story is that Deception finds has a way of finding us out. Jacob's deception brought it back on his head. Jacob was deceived and he found himself being deceived by Laban. We reap what we sow. And so, are there ways in which you are deceiving others? Are there ways in which you're painting a picture that isn't true to others? Maybe even to yourself. Are there a way in which you are isolating yourself and that you're so busy that you aren't able to see the truth about what's really going on in your life, in your relationship with the Lord? That's one of the biggest warnings that it says that deception has, is that deception, that oftentimes we are able to deceive ourselves about our relationship with the Lord. And that we think that we are doing great, we think that we're fine because we keep ourselves busy, we keep ourselves constantly preoccupied, and only when we're still Are we able to be confronted with the truth? Is God the God that we worship? Is he the one that we serve? I was so challenged. We went on the youth retreat and talked about one of the ways that clarifies the truth is about what we worship is what do we sacrifice for? We talked about that last week with Abraham. You want to know what you worship? What do you sacrifice for? What is it you spend your time, your energy, your finances, your mental energy on? It will cut through the deception of what you worship what your life orbits around. Your deception will destroy you. And we see one of the effects of deception is that it divides. Deception divides. It breaks down because you begin to worship something other than God. Allow the Lord to bring freedom. The Lord is truth. And where the Lord is, there is there is freedom. Let him come and bring freedom from deception in your life. Confess it. The other thing that we we learn from Jacob, another example that we learn is that Sin can't stay in categories. Jacob's family is a model of what's called generational sin. Generational sin. And so what that means is, it starts with Abraham. Abraham and Sarah deceive. They lie. They try to figure out a plan. They show favoritism and so forth. So does Isaac and Rebekah. They show favoritism and they are deceived. And then you see it with Jacob and Rebekah and Leah. They Jacob shows favoritism and he deceives. Right, it gets so bad. It gets so bad that his ten of his sons are deceiving him and selling out his one of his sons to prison, right? To to enslavement. And so what you see is that what you do in moderation is going to happen in excess. And so you see the sins of the parents coming down and being passed upon those of the children. So your sin isn't trivial. It's not insignificant. But instead it has drastic effects. This isn't, man, hear, hear this. This is not the guilt. Because what often happens in this moment is that guilt is heaped upon and we feel, man, we're so, listen, we all struggle with sin. There is no one in here that doesn't pass some form of brokenness down. But what it is meant to do is it's meant for us to take sin seriously. It's meant for us to realize that how I relate to God has drastic effects on everyone else around me. That when I worship other things, when I worship idols instead of the true and living God, that I'm teaching my children what to worship and how to worship. What I do with my time, what I do with my my resources, what my desire is in, that will be passed down. It is training others. I never saw this more clear. Then when I worked in college, I, I worked at a boy shelter for two years, my junior and senior year. And I worked with children, uh, with, with, uh, young men, um, usually 14 to 18 that had been sexually, um, physically, emotionally abused and seeing how generationally it had fallen forth and how they continued in it. I remember young one man or one young man, uh, his father was in a gang, his brother was in a gang, and he had been shot and was in a gang as well. And he came in, uh, and he had been in fights with staff, big, big kid, 6'3", 230, um, and he had fought with staff and was in the hospital and just came out, and, uh, and I was talking with him, and, and he had thought about suicide, and God had spoken to him through the story of Noah, and had told him that God is there to rescue God can ransom and save. And so he came to me, and we got to walk and talk, and he wanted a Bible. And so I got him a Bible, and we're sitting and we're talking. And um, before I would leave work, I would always ask if any, of the, if, if any of them wanted to pray. You know, if anybody wants to pray, I'm here. I'm here for you. Well, he got everybody to pray. He was kind of the ringleader of the house. And so he got all the other uh, ten kids, and he said, We're praying. All of you are praying. And so... So they all, they all gathered together and prayed and, uh, and that, that was a Tuesday night and I was just marveling thinking, you know, man, God's at work here. What's God going to do? And I came back early Saturday morning. I worked, 12 uh, hour shifts and, and got to spend the day with him talking, reading the Bible, discussing, seeing the Lord work and move and, and seeing change, seeing things in his life begin to break through. Um, and uh, and I remember it came through Saturday night, and and uh, and there's a shift change, and so we had a lot of staff and boys, and he's like, all right, everybody's praying, and one of the staff didn't want to pray, and he was like, no, you're praying, and uh, and he's like, oh, well, yeah. he hasn't taken meds, so if he doesn't take meds, I'm not praying, so. It's so he was like, all right, take meds. So he took meds, and so everybody prayed. Um, and so I, I left Saturday night, you know, just marveling at what God was up to, at how God was changing. Sunday morning, uh, we weren't able to bring him to church, and so he helped and and got some of the other kids, and some of the other staff came together, and we actually held a church service. And so the kids were there, and he was getting them to, you know, like, pay attention. He was like, hey, pay attention to this, we're we're talking about, you know. And so just seeing how the Lord was, was breaking through and bringing freedom, um, but then that afternoon, things changed. He uh, he got set off. Somebody came in and and, uh, and said the wrong thing, and he blew up. We had to end up restraining him, and he was coming with two bricks to break our cars and to shatter everything. And we had to restrain him, and he blocked out in rage. Was so angry, and he got taken from there and never got to see him again. And I was after that. I was really reflecting on that my heart was really broke. You know, just seeing the impact of, of sin and how it passes down and, and just just desiring for freedom for him. Desiring that he would be broken free of the sin that has been passed down to him for so long. And I was worshiping the next day at, at in chapel and the Lord just broke me. And he said, you, you don't think how long I've been laboring and how much I love him. How long and, and how much I'm pursuing him. I will bring freedom in my time and my purpose. And so I I hope all of us, all of us have things that we struggle with. All of us have sin that has been passed down to us. You are not defined by what has been done to you. You You're not defined by who your parents were. You are impacted, but you can choose to be set free. You no longer are defined by your name. In Christ, you are given a new name and you are given freedom. Allow him to break you free. Allow him to rescue you. Allow him to make a change in your family chain. That you would be the family that says, as for me and my household, we will call upon the name of the Lord. Let him bring you free. We also see positive examples with Jacob, right? Sometimes we look at a story and we're like, it's all bad. No, there's some some positive. One of the things that Jacob teaches us is that Jacob teaches us how to wrestle with God. Jacob shows us how to wrestle with God. Remember that part of the story? Jacob is, <laughs> Jacob's had a hard life up until now, right? He's, he's been deceived. He's at odds with his, you know, he deceived his father. His mother, you know, like, you know, enabled him. He is, you know, at odds with his brother. His brother wants to kill him. He's, there's quarreling within his family, his wives are at war with one another. He's just left his uncle who he was afraid his uncle was going to come kill him. And now he's awaiting 400 men that want, that he pretty much thinks want his life and want to take away everything that he has labored for, all of his hopes and his desires. And he is left alone. And what happens in this? He's left alone. And I, I just want to read, I want to read what he prays before this. Because, man, this shows this shows his heart. Before Abraham wrestles, or before uh, Jacob wrestles with, with God, he prays this. He says, O oh God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O oh Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan. Now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother. From the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for a multitude. Jacob is finally humbled before God. His manipulation, his deceit, his pride, thinking that he can control his life and he can get the results that he wants that delusion is finally laid aside and he comes to God humbled. Realizing he's not worthy that all the blessings, every good gift in his life he realizes is from the hand of God. Not as a result of his ability or his performance but instead it's by grace. He's humble before God. Jacob stands alone, he's anxious. How would would you want God to appear to you? Think about this. You're in, the, you're in the most strenuous point of your entire life. Everything in your life is crumbling around you. Have you been in those moments in your life? Have you had those times where everything seems to be falling apart? You're just looking for something to hold on to. Right? Jacob's in that moment. He's just looking for something to hold on to. He's just saying, listen, just throw me a bone. Just give me a break. Give me something. Right? And how does God appear to him? We would hope well, God would just send a soothing spirit. God would just come in in a comforting presence. What does God do? God comes and wrestles with him, right? Jacob doesn't want to wrestle with God. Uh, This is, sometimes this passage is preached, and it's preached as, listen, if you want what, if you have something you really want, you just need to prevail with God. Just wrestle God down. Just, if you just persist, God will listen to you, and you'll get God. That's not at all what this is about. Jacob didn't want to wrestle with God, Jacob just wanted to be left alone. Jacob was like, just give me some peace. Just give me some solace. I just want some comfort here. And God says, I'm going to wrestle with you. Because that's the only way in which you will be changed. I will come. And and I don't know if you've been in a, in a serious wrestling match, but it leaves you pretty tired. It leaves you pretty weak. And Jacob is preparing to face the biggest battle of his life against Esau. He's not wanting to wrestle God. But God comes and he wrestles Jacob nonetheless. He refuses to let him go. Jacob leaves there humbled, broken, and renamed as Israel. He is no longer defined by his deceitfulness, but instead he is defined by God's faithfulness to him. Jacob refuses to let God go because he wants the blessing. Right? What is the blessing that Jacob is so earnest to get? Why is it that Jacob will not let God go? He refuses to let go. Jacob has finally realized that what he most needs in his life is God's presence. He's finally come to the point in which he realizes that his greatest need is is God. It's not anything else. It's in this moment that he is changed. It's in this moment that he's humbled. And Jacob, listen, Jacob still makes mistakes. I think Jacob's very relatable to us because Jacob goes forth and still deceives Esau and then makes other mistakes, you know? But, but we see that he is, God no longer sees him as Jacob. He sees him as Israel, as a new creation. We learn from Jacob how to struggle with God. We learn that we come to God with humility. We come with openness. We come realizing that our desperate and most earnest need is him, is his presence. For it's his presence that brings everything else. It's God's presence that brought reconciliation between Esau and Jacob. It's God's presence that demonstra- and, and allowed Jacob to travel safely back to Bethel and led him to repentance. God's presence is what will lead you in your life. Is what you most hunger for is what you are most desperate for God's presence? Or is God just a means to another end? Are you using God that you might get something else that you really want. Jacob had done that before. He'd used God for his own purposes and his own ways, and he saw it vain and fruitless. And so will you. Only when we come to God and realize that what we most need is not to use God, but to have God for himself will we fully be changed. The last thing I want us to to look at with Jacob's story is... Um, I want us to look at Christ through Jacob. How is it that we see Christ in Jacob's story? Uh, The first way that we see Christ through Jacob's story is that Jesus, Jesus is the place where heaven and earth come together. Do you remember in, in Jacob's story where he goes to Bethel at the very beginning and he sees this ladder and there's angels that are ascending and descending and he hears God's voice and he marvels, he says, this is the place of God. This is Bethel, God's house. The place where heaven and earth meet. That is what was lost in the garden. Heaven, listen, heaven is wherever God is. Heaven is God's dwelling place. Where God is, heaven follows. In the Old Testament, we see that this happened in the Ark of the Covenant. That God's presence dwelt with his people through the Ark. And They, they brought the Ark because where God's presence here, where heaven is... There's peace, there's prosperity, there's goodness, there's wholeness, there's joy. We saw it in the temple, that the temple was where the Ark of the Covenant was put, and and God dwelt there. God had a physical location where he, he made his presence there more visible. But in Jesus, in Jesus, we see that heaven and earth meet through a person. Jesus comes in, in the first gospel, uh, in John, in the first chapter, and he's calling forth his disciples. And he calls to Nathanael, and he says, I saw you. And, and apparently Nathanael had been praying, or it said, it said something very prominent. And Jesus knew what Nathanael had said. And so Nathanael says, you really are the Son of God. And Jesus says, you will see greater things than this. For you will see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And what Jesus is saying there is he's saying, I I am the place where heaven and earth meet. I am the one that bridged the divide. I am the place where God's will is most perfectly and fully seen. And so what that means for us is that when we're in Christ, we have the the promise of heaven, that we have the guarantee that this life is not all that there is, that we will live in another life. But, But even now, what it means is that we get to taste heaven here. Heaven, we taste heaven when we see everything in submission underneath God's will. Right? That's the difference between heaven and earth, right? What's the difference between heaven and earth? The difference is that everything submits to God's will perfectly in heaven. Everything operates underneath his loving and sovereign reign. On earth it doesn't. And so we get glimpses of what heaven is like when we submit to Christ's lordship. When everything begins to operate underneath his loving reign and rule as we taste it. We see it. And that can only happen through Jesus. For there is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved except Jesus. The next thing that that we see and how we see Jesus through Jacob is that we see that Jesus is the true Israel that establishes an everlasting kingdom. Right? We know from the rest of the Bible that, that God changes Jacob's name to Israel. Right? And that's not just the name of a man. That's the name of the entire nation. And Israel's sons aren't just individual sons, but instead they are heads of entire tribes. And so they come and and they stand as a symbol for the greater one that is to come. Jesus comes on the scene, and the first thing that he does is he gathers 12 disciples around him. Why? Because he's showing that he's bringing in a new kingdom, that he is the true Israel that has come on the scene. And that he is establishing a more permanent and more fulfilled spiritual kingdom that will be everlasting. We see it in Jesus' wrestle with God. Jacob wrestles with God, right? And his hip is touched. Jesus goes in the garden of Gethsemane and he wrestles with God. He says, not my will, but thy will be done. And instead of being rescued, instead of being delivered, Jesus is forsaken. Jesus is slaughtered. Jesus is, instead of giving the blessing that he was deserved, Jesus was cursed and set away. Why? Why? Why did the perfect son of man who deserved the highest of blessings be cursed? Because he struggled for God, not on his own behalf, but on ours. Jesus came and and fought with God and, and God's judgment God's wrath on our behalf. That we might have a new identity. That we might have a new name. And this changes everything. What this means now is that this means as Christians, we approach God and we wrestle with God, not in order that we might have his presence, but because we have his presence, because we have his love and have his favor. It is because of Jesus that we are blessed. Jesus is our fullest blessing And the one that guarantees that we can stand before God, loved, accepted, cared for. What this means is it means that our life is marked by grace. Our life is marked by grace. And what this should do is it should allow us to rest. It should allow us to rest. Because we know that even in the midst of our failures, even in the midst of our mistakes, God is sovereign and God's love will prevail in our life. That our sin will never outweigh God's grace. Is your life marked by grace? Is it marked by God's performance instead of your own? Are you able to laugh? Are you able to have joy? Are you able to rest? Is your life marked by God's grace? Let us pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you so much um, for Jacob, for his example both positive and negative, And we thank you for Jesus, ultimately the greater Jacob, the greater the true Israel who comes and establishes a permanent kingdom forever. God, I pray for those that are here that, that don't know you, um, that perhaps are even now wrestling with you. Maybe they've been in church their whole life, God. Maybe they've just stepped in. I pray that you would save, God, that you help people to trust fully and totally that their standing is by, is by your grace, not by their performance. It's by your obedience, Jesus, and, and not by ours, that we are called just to place our faith in you, God. And so I pray for your people. I pray that we would put all of our faith in you, God, that we wouldn't be deceived, but instead we would see where we're really at, what we really worship, and that we would now in these moments consciously choose to worship you that we wouldn't walk in deception, that we wouldn't pass the sin that is hindering us on to future generations, God, but instead we would we would make a change, God. We would lead our family in confession and repentance, that we would be renewed by you. We worship and we love you, Christ. It is in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen.